When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Very shortly, we'll be hearing from an old friend and colleague from back in my days in Manchester, a legendary DJ from the Hacienda, which was kind of Manchester's equivalent to Studio 54, Mr Dave Haslam. And um, by way of a change, I thought, why not I turn up on my own podcast? So I'm going to share my own moments after Dave. I'm Dave Haslam. I'm a, a DJ and a writer. I think I first met Tony in the mid-80s, and I was, uh, at that point, uh, doing a fanzine in Manchester called Debris. And this is the middle, yeah, the middle of the 80s. And uh, Debris was a pretty good fanzine, and through that I began working in NME briefly, and that led to The Face magazine. And more recently, my journalism is in The Guardian and The Times and proper grown-up stuff. And also around the mid-80s, I'd started promoting bands in Manchester. I put on the first gig uh, Primal Scream ever played in the city, and The Shaman and Sonic Youth. Um, That was at a club called The Boardwalk. And and I began DJing as well. Uh, So around 1986, I started at the Hacienda. um, And I used to do every Thursday and at the beginning every Saturday at the Hacienda. And I ended up playing there nearly 500 times, including the final ever night in June 1997. And since then, I've still been DJing uh, Detroit, Hamburg, Berlin, Peru, Chicago. It's been great. Uh, and I, I've loved the travel and I love I love playing my favorite music loudly to appreciative people. And that's kind of what DJing is. And um, And the writing I still do, I kind of prioritise writing books, um, and but more recently I've started this series of small format books. They're kind of like extended essays, and um, I love doing the research for them and and producing them one every year, roughly. And recent books that I've written have been about Courtney Love, the poet Sylvia Plath, the artist Keith Herring. So my interests have been, you know, music, but a lot more than music, but often how music works in people's lives. I mean, despite doing all those things, still mostly what I end up talking about, and I guess what made my reputation was that DJing at the Hacienda. 
I mean, it was a big club in Manchester opened by Factory Records and New Order, who were my favourite band then and still are, um, opened in 1982. And, I mean, it's it's become, you know, a legendary venue, uh, documentary TV series about it. Uh, obviously, 24-hour party people, the film, that covers a lot for Hacienda years. And it was like the Studio 54 uh, uh, for, for the UK, uh, but it's got it has um, a reputation all over all over the world, and that's really why I get invited to go to all these places because they want a little bit of a taste of what they think the hacienda might have been all about. And out of the hacienda, which was a nightclub, also came bands like the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays. They were very much incubated at the hacienda, and it was very much part of a incredible scene in Manchester at the end of the eighties. Um, and you know, it was the club that really pushed house music uh, into the UK. I mean, there were lots of people playing house music, but the Hacienda became the blueprint for a lot of the rave stuff that happened in through the 1990s. Um, And that's what it's looked back on. You know, in in the documentary TV stuff, they're always talking about the Hacienda as being the place where things started. And I remember very keenly back then that we were always encouraged to be different and to play music that other people weren't playing and to keep pushing it and being pioneering. And even if some of the stuff we did didn't work, that didn't matter as long as we were pushing it on and and kind of pushing the frontiers of what people were listening to, turning people on to new music. I think at the Hacienda, we felt part of that uh, factory family. And and like, you know, and, and if you know anything about the factory story, you'll also know that Tony and the other people who ran Factory Records, they always gave the bands pretty much free reign over the sound of the music, the lyrics, um, even you know the packaging. And similarly, when you're at the Hacienda, they never told you what to play. They left you to do your job. They trusted you to do the job. And that gave you a lot of freedom. And in those days, DJs would be resident DJs. You'd play the same club week in and week out. And that really, really built an audience. It built a community, even more importantly. And um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a fantastic era and a great project to be involved in. And to be honest, I used to think of myself um, along the lines you're talking about. People sometimes say to me, you know, who, who inspired you to become a DJ? And it was radio DJs. It wasn't club DJs. Wow. It was DJs. Like John Peel, yeah. Steve Barker, Radio Lancashire, yeah. yourself, Mike Shaft, uh, other DJs. Because for me, it was all what the prime primacy was the music, and and even now, nearly forty years on, if I have a DJ gig, I take along with me at least five or six things that I think the audience won't know, and I set myself the challenge of finding the right time in the in that evening to drop that tune so that even though they don't know it, they go with it. Otherwise, you're just playing the same records everyone else is playing. First of all, it, it creates your uniqueness as a DJ. But secondly, you know, it, 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 it's, it's why I'm there. Otherwise, you might as well be a jukebox. So that for me, I, I always know what the big records are going to be. But the important thing when I DJ, well, what are the six or seven records going to be? That at the end of the night, people are going to be asking me, what is this? 
that challenge of playing something that someone doesn't know and and uh and, and then loving it is is what it's all about so that's kind of a brief resume of stuff that i've done So the moment that rocked, or one of them for me, I'm going to go back to that era in the mid-80s when I was promoting gigs in Manchester. And um, and I, I want to remember this gig that I did that I put on with Sonic Youth. I mean, Sonic Youth, when I first heard them, they really changed, in a way, my whole the whole way I was listening to music, and they were an incredible band live. The first time I saw them live was 1985, and the Eve, uh, the Bad Moon Rising album had just come out, and they played Leeds. Leeds is kind of near Manchester, and I went over there to see them play, and, I mean, it was a very obscure venue, and the venue had no stage, so the band had to set up on the dance floor. And there were about 30 of us that night watching Sonic Youth. And I'd also watched the sound check. And after the sound check, I'd gone with the band to eat and to interview them for my fanzine. And, um, I mean, the place we went to eat was called Pizza Hut, which was a very, you know, not very upscale pizza restaurant. There weren't any upscale pizza restaurants in, in the UK at that point. And um, I remember there was a salad bar where you could get your lettuce and a bit of tomato and then your pizza came out. And I've still got the tape uh, of, of me interviewing Sonic Youth that evening. And uh, and then I kind of kept in touch with them as best he could in that era without emails and social media. And when um, they toured in 1986... I put them on at the boardwalk and the capacity of that place was 200 and we sold out the boardwalk. And uh, the funny thing about that night was at the end of the show, we went from the boardwalk to the Hacienda, which at that point was not very busy on a Saturday night. And uh, so I had a night out with Sonic Youth at the Hacienda at the same time. Anyway, I mean, I was really into the band. I also reviewed Evil for the NME. So what was exciting for me was to see them at their early stage and to be a champion. I wanted everyone to get into Sonic Youth. I mean, I probably badgered you to play Sonic Youth, Tony, on your radio show. You know, <laughs> I felt that um, excited by them. And um, I, again, kept in touch with them. And the next time was 1987. And Evil had come out by then. And I knew I needed somewhere bigger than the boardwalk. Um so I was living in a place called Hume uh, in inner city Manchester, which was uh, a, a, an estate of flats or what Americans call the projects. And it was a really pretty rundown area. My, my actual flat had cockroaches living under the fridge, damp on all the walls. It wasn't great, but it was, it, well, it wasn't cheap because you could just live there for free. It was like a squat. So near to that where I was living was an old Irish club called the Ardrey Ballroom. And when I say Irish, it was Irish in the sense that every night there was either a show band from Ireland or a more traditional Irish band. St. Patrick's Night was the big night. They sold lots of Guinness. 90% of the people who went were Irish. 
And the DJ was actually Noel and Liam's dad, Tommy. And um, he was called the monk because he had a like a, he was losing a bit of hair, but he kind of tried to keep his hair around his ears. So he had a bit of a haircut like a monk. And uh, so anyway, it was a Monday night because that was the only night I could put them on in Manchester. And it's not an easy night to um, to get an audience. Uh, I decided to give Tommy Gallagher the night off because I thought we didn't need him warming up for Sonic Youth. And um, so it was a Monday night at the Ardry Ballroom in this dodgy part of town uh, on a yeah on a Monday night, June 1987. And I hired the venue for £10. And the guy who owned the venue, who was also called Tommy, I think he just thought I was a madman, you know. I tried to explain to him uh, what Sonic Youth were like, like coming from New York, etc. And I think he was fired up by my enthusiasm, and he took out an advert in the local paper. And in amongst all the advert for Kayleys and all these Irish bands, it had Monday uh, from New York, the Sonic Youth, which was, you know, helpful bit of advertising. And I arrived uh, at about four o'clock to put all the equipment in. We had to take all the um, sound equipment into the venue, all the PA, because they, all they had was a stage. And um, and I arrived, and Tommy, the owner, uh, said to me, "This is this is incredible." And I'm like, "Well, what what's gone on?" And he was had been getting phone calls all day from people asking how to get to his venue. And he'd just taken a phone call from somebody from Southampton, uh, which I had, in fact, Southampton was about 300 miles away from Manchester. And they were setting off and they wanted to know how to get to his Irish club. Anyway, it, it was absolutely packed. And uh, Sonic Youth were incredible. And um, instead of Tommy Gallagher DJing, I actually DJed. I kind of did everything. I was I was 25 years old. I just thought I can put the band I could put the band on. I can organize all the marketing. I can do the DJing. And then also I put them up in my grotty apartment. Um because you know, they were still uh relatively early in their career. They weren't making great money. I think that night I paid them 250 pounds. So they needed somewhere to stay, and I lived literally around the corner. So Sonic Youth and uh, the manager came uh, came in to my little place and slept on the floor. I think they had to get up early the next day because they had to get all the way down to the coast, to Holland. They were going over to Holland by ferry. So um, I, I don't remember them sleeping in. I didn't have to provide a bed for them. They literally kind of just fell asleep on the chairs and the sofa. We did have a bit of a drinking session before everyone fell asleep. Uh, I kind of filled the fridge with various bits of alcohol, which they drank. And um, so for me, looking back, I'm 25. And somehow I got myself into a situation where a band that David Bowie was later going to say was the most important band of the 80s. I'd done all this, been associated with them, hung out with them, seen this live gig, seen these sound checks, and then put them up, sleeping on my floor. So fast forward 30 years, and uh, I write my autobiography, and I decide to call it Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor. And the reason I did that was not to 
name drop. It wasn't me saying, you know, aren't I amazing or anything? Because, you know, everyone has stories. But for me, it was because it was the quintessential experience in music for me that makes me excited about music. A, a young band, a very grassroots scene, undercapitalized, no big marketing budget, people really doing it for love and because they believed in it, the band, me, everyone around me at that time. And that's what we were motivated by, just the love of what we were doing. And for me, that was a really important thing. And all the stuff that I've done since, the great moments have been like that. Everyone has to start somewhere. And often they start from an amazing place. And to be able to go and see the band, hear the music for the first time, get to, you know, get to have, have a can of beer with them and, and talk to them. And that was what it's all about. So I think ever, ever since then, I've tried to replicate those kinds of experience and most of all, to value them. It's not the big stadium. It's not primetime TV. None of that really interests me with bands. It's about that early moment when they're effervescing, they're coming to life. And that's why that moment, that evening, rocked my world. Dave Aslam talking about his experience with meeting Sonic Youth, putting them on, hanging out with them, and introducing them to cockroaches. We'll be back in a minute. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So here we are at part two. I was wondering uh, what guests you'll have for part two of this. I hope you enjoyed Dave Haslam. I really did. It was great listening to his stories from back in the day. But I thought, why not be a guest on my own podcast? Because I started to listen to some stuff and I realised I'm not that much in my own show. So I'll put a change to that and I'll share some of my moments that rock. So... My name is Tony Michaelidis, like it says at the beginning of the podcast. So I started the music industry in 1974, selling records out of the back of a van for £25 a week. I loved it. It was folk and jazz, which I knew nothing about, but um, it was a great way to get to know retailers, and um, they took me onto a lot of amazing music, as it happens. In 1978, I uh, went to my all-time favourite record label, which was Arden Records, and got to work with people like uh, Steve Winwood, whose records I'd bought as a kid when he was in traffic. Robert Palmer, Grace Jones, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Come 1980, they had some financial problems, so five hours got laid off. I was fortunate enough to get a job about 20 minutes later with Charisma, which gave me the opportunity to work with Peter Gabriel and Genesis, which was a great experience. Uh, then I went back to Ireland, I'll kind of keep this fairly brief, um, as kind of regional, sale, uh, regional promotion manager, working with the sales team as well. And then uh, I got offered a job at A&M, which at the time had The Police, which was the biggest band in the world. Um, but I didn't want to really leave the label, although they laid me off once, I didn't, didn't really leave um, the family that was Island Records. So I went back to A&M and suggested that can I do A&M and Island, which allowed me to set up independently. I think I was the first person to do that in the UK. We worked out of Manchester, we picked up Mute Records with Depeche Mode and Eurasia and a few others, Factory Records with New Order, and um, it really expanded at quite a good rate, and uh, it was incredibly rewarding because we got to choose the artists that we worked with. I built a really strong team of people around me that went on to do great things themselves that I'm really to this day very proud of. And um, in 2002, uh, the music industry was starting to change. So um, I, uh, I had a place in America, so I decided it was time to emigrate. So to cut a long story short, I kind of put everything to bed, came out here, looked to do a bit of radio cons- uh, music consultancy and things like that. But basically now, um, my job doesn't really exist. The music industry changed. So all I want to do now is write and talk. I have a moment that I have a moment to the rock book out, another one inside from the engine room. And release a series of ebooks, lessons learned from rock and roll, lessons lived in business, and I also have obviously this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. My first moment that rock really came in um, 19. 19- 68 I think, 68 or 69, I was 15 years of age, I went with my friend Ken to see Led Zeppelin, who was just on the verge of world domination, they just released their first album, Led Zeppelin 1, we got tickets, and um, the show was incredible, Um, after the show, uh, the commissioner kind of throws everybody out, but we kind of smuggled back in, asked the commissioner if we could take the poster off the wall, Um, they didn't sell really merchandise in those days, you were lucky if you had a programme, so we got this poster and uh, we peeked our heads into the front of the um, the front of the concert arena and really I was just interested in watching the roadies take down the equipment because like I said I'd love the show. 
Robert Plant walks out and starts talking to one of the crew. Um, he sees us down at the front there looking up and he kneels down. He says, uh, do you want me to sign that, guys? And it was kind of, uh, yes, please, sir. <laughs> so he signs it, rolls it back up, hands it down to us. And um, then he turns around and looks at us again. I'll never forget this moment. And he says, it's not much good with just me on it, is it? Do you want me to get the other guys to sign it? And it was like, uh, you know, like I say, we were 15 and pretty starstruck to say the least. And uh, he said, come, come meet the guys. And we went backstage. In those days, it was just really, if you imagine a theatre with the, the kind of standard little kind of bulbs and mirror where they used to put the makeup on and things. No hospitality as such, no crates of beer and M&Ms and all the kind of things that they get loaded with backstage nowadays. It was just four guys just cooling down after a gig. Um, and they were chit-chatting and everything, and we were in the corner kind of nervous but excited we, we missed our train home that night which was enough um, but we got to hang out with real rock stars and the point being that it really taught me at an early age what it was like to meet your heroes and it helped me down the line when I was working with a lot of artists that other people would have really loved to meet so whenever we had free tickets or anything I'd go outside the venue and give them to people and just the look on people's faces made it amazing one thing that I do remember very 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 vividly there and it's funny because when I was writing my book, it was almost like I was in that dressing room 40 years ago. And um, I remember Jimmy Page sat on the, the uh, counter by the uh, mirror and us in the corner just really doing nothing other than being delighted to be there. And um, Jimmy Page leant over and looked at Robert Plant and said, are you going to come round to our place tomorrow? Then we'll finish that song. I stopped as I was writing and I thought, oh my God, was I there at a moment in history? Could they have been talking about Stairway to Heaven or something like that? And there I was in that dressing room, part of just a magical moment. So really meeting Led Zeppelin, age 15, and knowing what it felt like going to school with my mates who'd also been to the gig but hadn't had what we had, which was meeting Led Zeppelin and going backstage. That was a major, major moment that rocked. A second moment that rocked was probably as big a moment as I'll ever have. It was being given the opportunity to work with David Bowie. Now, you have to remember, I grew up listening to artists like David Bowie. In fact, my story is working with people whose records I bought as a kid. I was 18 years old when I watched David Bowie split up the spiders from Mars in front of me, and I was completely gutted. I couldn't believe it. I was mad at him. I was thinking, oh my God, where am I going to get my next David Bowie record? How could you do this to me? And then 25 years later, I had the opportunity of working with him, sitting down with him every night and going through the promotion that was available, seeing what he would do, what he wouldn't do, arranging station idents for station radio stations in Japan and China, throwing the old photographers out of the orchestra pit after they were allowed to take the first three numbers, giving out the passes, and basically just being a very focal point in, uh, in a tour. It was the Earthlink tour of 1997. How it came about was uh, hilarious but um, amazing at the same time. There was a company in London that took care of a, a lot of his management stuff and things called Lipsy Mead. I was in my office. We'd been promoting David Bowie but really just mailing his records out and he went through different periods where, you know, some records were more popular than others for uh, airplay and stuff and this was kind of drum and bass period for, for Bowie. Um, so I got a phone call um, from Lipsy Mead, and it was Roxy Mead, in fact, one of the uh, co-founders, and she phoned me up and she said, uh, we're not going to be able to do this tour, Tony, so I thought I'd give you a ring and see if you'd go out on the road with him as his publicist. 
So there's kind of this pause. And I say, you want me to work with David Bowie? And she went a bit hesitantly, uh, yeah. And I said, well, of course I will. You know, she said, that's fantastic. Um, go down to the show tomorrow in Manchester. Um, I'll give you the name of the tour manager, introduce yourself, because David likes to meet everybody that he's working with. So fair enough, I went down, I wasn't nervous, I was super excited. So, um, you know, before this, before the gig and everything, I went backstage, got introduced to him, we chit-chatted and things. And the following day, I got a call, and um, it was uh, it was from Roxy again, and it was like, um, yeah, David, David really liked you, blah, 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 um, can you start tomorrow? And it was like, yeah. She said, that's amazing, she said. I'll send you the details and things and who to link up with and stuff and things like that. And um, then I'll phone you back and we talk, talk about the money. And again, there's this pause. And I go, you want me to work with David Bowie? And she went, uh, yeah. And I said, and you're gonna pay me? <laughs> like I needed paying to work with a guy like that. The tour was amazing. I mean, we got to stay in some old stately homes and stuff. Bowie was just, incredible to work with just the ultimate in a fantastic artist humility graciousness an amazing sense of humor it taught me so much i was even listening to his music driving in between gigs and a couple of the things that happened on the road were um you know i remember sitting down with him at uh, a gig in nottingham nottingham rock city in fact going through the promotion that's available and um he said, what's happening today, Tony? I said, well, you know, there's a couple of guys there. I said, you know, one guy's from the BBC. He's a big fan. He's got all your records. Um, he'd like to do an interview. Uh, and I said, the other guy's from the commercial station, which is um, ATV, which is in the Midlands. They call the middle of country, the Midlands in England. Um, I said, listen, you know, you don't have to do either of these. It's entirely up to you. I said, this guy, you know, he's, he's, they'll show a clip of the video. The gig sold out. You're a famous person. It helps them get ratings. But it's up to you, David. So he looked at me and said, well, what do you think, Tony? What, what would you suggest? So I said, well, you know, again, it's, it's up to you, but if I was gonna do one, I'd do the interview with the guy from the BBC, because he's obviously a fan. And he looked at me and he said, if you think I should do it, I'll do it. And it was so kind of cool and laid back. And, and I walked out of that dressing room and left him, because the man was on the road, his wife. So I left him to his own kind of, you know, personal time. And I walked down the corridor and I was clenching my fists. I couldn't believe that, that David Bowie's agreed to do something on my recommendation. It was phenomenal. Another thing that I remember vividly was every night he used to come on stage um, and he'd come out in a, with no shoes and socks on, with an acoustic guitar, white cotton trousers, a white satin shirt with a spotlight on him, looking amazing. And he'd walk up and he'd play a song from either Hungry Dory or Ziggy Stardust. And it was almost like a private show. I was just stood there, surrounded by photographers, snapping all these shots of him, listening to songs that I grew up on. It was almost like a performance in your front room. I could go on forever, but I tried to keep these podcasts to around 30, 35 minutes. So those are two moments that rocked my world. Hope you enjoyed today's Moments That Rock with Dave Haslam and me, and we'll be back with more. Thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 